0: Hi, listener. Welcome to Millennial Moves, a podcast about millennials doing great things. I'm your millennial host, Zach Donish. If you've listened to the preview episode for Chapter 4, you'll no doubt be aware of some of the big changes coming to Millennial Moves that'll take place over the next few months. I'm really excited about the direction of Millennial Moves, and not only about improving the interview format from week to week, but providing additional content about millennial life and culture. As I've said before, there's a ton of negative press about millennials out there, and I want to do my part in showing off the great things that my peers are doing, hopefully to help provide a a counterweight of sorts when it comes to showing how millennials are changing modern life. Those 18 to 35-year-olds that are doing great things and achieving their dreams despite adversity can certainly teach us a lot about finding success in our own life. Many of the guests we've interviewed so far on this podcast have certainly faced adversity, but at the same time have undoubtedly had streaks of luck that helped them become successful. And as we've seen from episode to episode, success comes not only through hard work, of course, that takes a lot of that, but also through an incredible opportunity that you've put yourself in the right position to take advantage of. For this next series of podcasts, we're going to flip the script a little bit. Instead of focusing in on the path to success in a particular industry or area of interest, we're going to look directly at the creative process as a whole. Some changes. One, you'll notice the interviews feel a bit different than before. And two, we're going to a weekly schedule instead of this current bi-weekly schedule with a preview podcast in between. I hope you're all excited about the future of our Millennial Moves website as well. We're going to be talking more about that on future shows, but uh, suffice it to say, it'll be a great place to house not only Millennial Moves audio and written content, as well as uh, a centralized, some other projects I have up my sleeve. Chapter four of Millennial Moves, this episode, is all about the creative process. I've interviewed four very different creatives from across the Fine Arts Continuum, and I've used some pretty similar questions. And then four weeks from now, the cool part about this is that we're going to come back together and compare and contrast some of what we found during our discussions with these very creative people. This first podcast will feature Dana Kaufman, a composer uh, who I actually debated against in Congressional Debate, which was kind of a Chicago metro area uh, debate format. It was very unique. It combined politicking, speech skills, as well as making a cogent argument. Uh, Dana was wonderful at it. Me, uh, not so much. I did all right. and I think we can both say, though, that it played a huge part of our development and our high school experience. Dana will be talking on this podcast about her experiences as a composer and tying together ways that composition is different creatively than other disciplines, some of her composing and artistic habits, and more. I certainly hope it spurs you, listener, to start thinking about how you create your process and your creative habits. I won't keep you from our great interview any longer. Enjoy. (laughs) I'm here with Dana Kaufman, composer who studied at Amherst College, the New England Conservatory, overseas at the Estonian Academy of Music and Theater on a Fulbright scholarship, and is currently a dean's fellow on the home stretch towards her doctorate in music composition at the University of Miami. Thanks so much Dana for joining me here on Millennial Moves. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, it's great to have you on. Now, Dana, you're, of course, a composer, and uh, I'm here to talk a bit about the kind of the creative process with you. So what makes composing, especially classical composition, different than other creative disciplines? Really what I want to know is what struggles are unique to composition that other disciplines might not face?
1: I think sometimes the creative process in composing is difficult, that said, I think the creative process in any field can be difficult. But I think about when I try and put dots on paper and what I go through to make that happen. And when people think of the composing process or what composing entails, I think sometimes they envision a really sexy, romantic process involving candles and half a bottle of Merlot and pacing back and forth while rubbing your chin. But I think that couldn't be further from the truth for me. Uh, For me, composing involves usually putting on a torn pair of pajama pants with Twinkies on them. Twinkies, the really uh, artificial yellow cake with the cream filling. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't biodegrade very well. No, does not biodegrade very well at all, um, that I've had for about 15 years, get in my pajamas. um, I very anxiously hurl junk food at my uh, notation software until it does what I wanted to do. There is some pacing back and forth. There's not necessarily an aha moment. It doesn't always come so easily. And basically, I'm just a hot mess sitting there in front of my computer screen. Um, I will say, though, that sometimes uh, or actually, in general, I really need to have the music in my head before I sit down to write it. Otherwise, I will just sit there hurling Cheez-Its at the screen and uh, (laughs) it has to... Follow me sort of wherever I go. So I'm in the shower, walking around in class, uh, that it almost has to be distracting to the point of, okay, I, I need to sit down and write this, and i I know exactly what I want to write because otherwise, I'll just sit there forever and try and think of an idea and, when the idea hasn't come to you in an organic way, it's really hard to, to engage in this process of putting down little dots on paper and make it become uh, something concrete. So I think one of the, the difficulties of the process is, is figuring out how you work best. So if that means getting in your twinkie pajama pants, if it means having half that bottle of Merlot, if it means walking around and letting the ideas germinate before you even begin touching staff paper or begin touching Sibelius or Finale, figure out what works for you, but there's no right answer.
0: So which, I guess, uh, maybe we'll choose some sides here uh, as we talk to a few different composers on this particular podcast. What uh, notation software do you use?
1: So I use Sibelius. um a friend actually just this evening posted something on Facebook asking, should I buy Sibelius or Finale? And there was a very heated and extensive debate on his Facebook wall. So uh, you will get a very passionate answer from pretty much every composer uh, with regard to the Sibelius or Finale question. Um, I use Sibelius, but I could use Finale and my music wouldn't be any different. So it's, it's really a matter of personal preference. Some people... Uh, handwrite everything directly onto staff paper. Some people only use the computer. Some people use both. But um, I think whatever works best for you, whatever helps you get your ideas down on paper fastest is just right.
0: Full disclosure, I am a finale fan. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, you can, you can uh, <laughs> razz me about that later. But, you know, I guess uh, how much do you actually work on paper? Because that's something that as a, you know, a really amateur composer, I actually had a chance and I'll, I'll kind of gush a little bit. I listened to a number of your pieces before we we sat down and chatted. I am I I love them. They're, they're great. Oh, I, and I'll, I'll make sure shucks. to put some of them in the show notes. But uh, yeah, no. And, 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 and how, mu- how much paperwork do you do? Because that's something I could never actually really stand. I, maybe it's a patience thing, but I always felt like having that. Uh, Immediacy. Maybe it's uh, being being a millennial. You want that instant feedback. You want to listen to your music. How how much do you work on paper?
1: I very rarely work on paper. I know some people who absolutely insist that you need to work on paper and that. uh, um, Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty. Yeah, it's a little old school. I mean, I think some teachers say you should be able to handwrite everything and know exactly how it sounds. Um, I agree with that. I think writing into software is just so much more efficient, and it will get you where you need to go faster. And everybody needs their score and parts typed up nowadays. So you're going to have to input it into the computer anyway. Um, For those who are not familiar with notation software, there is a fantastic playback function that will allow you to hear what you've composed. And this is both a blessing and a curse because sometimes we find ourselves relying on it too heavily. And sometimes it helps us figure out, okay, this isn't working. I need to go with different harmonies or I need different, uh, rhythmic strategies. And, um, it can be very helpful. So I, I definitely, I, I do compose directly, via computer. And I probably use the playback function more than I should. But in general, I don't think it uh, hurts my composing process. And I don't think it affects the artistry (laughs) or lack thereof, uh, in general.
0: I think I'd certainly agree with that. Just talking to a number of folks throughout my education, I guess in that same vein, in addition to playback functions and uh, Twinkie pajamas, do you have (laughs) any other tools you use that really kind of help you write or kind of get the the, the music out, you know, whether it's a ball you bounce against a window or do you chain smoke and drink coffee obsessively kind of what are your habits when you go into composing?
1: Um, you know, I think for me, I can compose anywhere. So I can go to a loud coffee shop, um, and I think uh, I think like uh, like many people, a huge percentage of the population has um, associative synesthesia. So I associate colors with music, and sometimes I'll think in color instead of thinking in sound when I compose. So I can go somewhere really loud and think about colors coming together, and think, okay, I want uh, brown and purple and green here, and then some blue is going to happen. Um, And I sort of know what that's going to sound like. So um, sometimes I'll go to the library and write. Uh, Sometimes I, again, will be in a noisy coffee shop. But um, there's really no a certain place I need to, to be, except when I come home and I throw on those twinkie pajama pants, um, and I'm, um, pacing back and forth nervously, which I think when I'm not in a a coffee shop, that's, that's where I am. Um, I think when, when it's hard to think of, of material and it's really hard to sit down and focus, a lot of my teacher's in the past have suggested just listening to other music, just go on a listening binge and try and be inspired by what you hear. Uh, Another solution somebody offered was to write, uh, write four measures of music either by hand or on the computer, print it out or, uh, just take the staff paper, crumple it up into a ball and throw it away. And do the same thing and then keep doing that over and over again and just toss whatever you write, because I think so often we get uh, really nervous about our ideas and we're unsure of ourselves and there's a lot of anxiety in the writing process that this isn't going to be good enough. I hate this. I, I shouldn't even write this at all because I'm scared of what people were think. And I think those, those thoughts are very real, but I also think there are ways to help us transcend those fears and just, uh, let ourselves put things down on paper because once it's, once it's down on paper, we can breathe a little bit, even if we're not that happy with the work. Once it's down on paper, you can always fix it. It's just a matter of getting going a lot of the time.
0: Let's take a step back. You talked a little bit about synesthesia. Can you kind of give us a brief overview of what that is and kind of how that plays a role in your composition?
1: Sure. Absolutely. So um, uh, you, this certainly isn't unique to me. I think a lot of people experience this and artists in particular, uh, but I have associative synesthesia. So I make different uh associations between music and colors or, um, sound and other senses. Essentially your senses are a little mixed up with one another. Um, Messiaen, for example, had just plain old synesthesia. So he would see colors when he heard music. Um, I just associate colors with music. So if I'm, uh, to me, the different notes, uh, take on different colors. So I think of D is pink and F is purple and G is red. Uh, but if you want a C major chord, that is, uh, white and red and green. So sometimes I'll, uh, I look at music and I think of the colors. And sometimes when I'm composing, I say, okay, I want some purple here and I want some, uh, green here. And I, I have at this point been able to match up the colors with the sounds. So, um, so it, you know, it's, or even it goes into other, this, I find this in other realms of my life. So I had a parking spot last year, number four, two, four, two, which to me meant purple, yellow, purple, yellow cornbread. Um, so (laughs) that was how I thought of it. Um, So I think, you know, for, for people who have that, and a lot of us do, you can use that to your advantage, you know, use whatever skills you have, use whatever uh, ways of thinking uh, that you you can uh, in order to write music or uh, in your process of, of creative output. Uh, So I definitely use that a lot in my writing, uh, just thinking visually sometimes instead of uh, sonically.
0: So just to be clear, this isn't necessarily like a mnemonic device. You're not sort of making these associations to help you remember things. Like, you know, it it almost sounded like in the case of your parking space, this is more you literally think of an object and all of a sudden that color or that feeling or or that comes to mind. Is that right?
1: Yes, correct. So this is not by choice. Um, this is just how I think. So, uh, I haven't decided to pair up a note with a color. It's just, it just is. (laughs) And it always has been. Yeah.
0: That's, that's, that's really cool. It's, you know, you get getting to paint your music uh, in some Mm -hmm.
1: ways. Yeah. I guess you could say that. Yeah. So in terms of,
0: Planning your compositions because one of the big themes of this podcast is about kind of getting to the process. You know, once you have that spark of inspiration or once you've molded over your ideas. How uh, how much planning do you do for the piece? You know, are you thinking of form or do you just jump right in to a piece of music? Or can you tell me a bit about that process of planning uh, and, and what that looks like before you begin to either put pen to paper or clicks to, uh, to Sibelius?
1: <laughs> uh, that's a fantastic question. And I think that's very different for everybody. I know a lot of composers who sit down and make sketches. So they'll make these broad outlines of the form of their piece uh maybe even write a few sentences about what they want to accomplish and that process is very methodical uh and you know, they have a a timeline from when they sketch to when they start crafting the skeleton of their piece to when they really flesh it out. Um, And that's very straightforward. And I think really wonderful for some people. I think for me, again, I I just need to have the piece in my head before I sit down to write it. And um, I'm not, I, I don't, sketch things out. Sometimes I think I should, sometimes I think, no, it's fine. As long as it's in my head, then I can sit down and, and write it. Um, so, you know, what's the difference, but I think, um, I think it's important to do whatever works for you. And I don't think there is a right or wrong answer. Um, I think, when you're stuck, some little exercises can be helpful. Again, um, the exercise with writing four bars and then tossing the piece of paper. Recycle, of course. Recycle, uh, <laughs> recycle the piece of paper. Always important. Uh, of course. <laughs> um, but you know, my my process is uh, again. I think thinking about the colors, thinking about. Uh, the sounds as I walk around and, and say, okay, later, I'm going to sit down and uh, here's what I'm hearing. And now it's time to translate it uh, into dots on paper. Um, But I, I definitely don't uh, plan that much or plan as much as I should. It's different, I should say, uh, for um, opera and vocal writing. And um, much of my focus has been on operatic and vocal writing and for that it's quite different because there's text. So there's already a form provided for you uh, that you are supposed to, I think, not only honor but enhance. Uh, so you are working with the text uh as you would almost a collaborator that the the text is like a person itself that is making the piece come to life. So um, for example, I'm working on an opera now and the I, I think about the text before I think about anything else because that is definitely the driving force behind the music. That's what I've been provided by the librettist with whom I'm collaborating. And the characters themselves in the opera really become their own people. And it's like they live with you. Uh, and it, it's almost like a, sometimes I feel like I, um, uh, there, I have a beloved pet at home that I need to come back and take care of that. Oh, okay. You know, uh, this, uh, I'm doing whatever I'm doing, this character is waiting for me at, at home to come work on them or to come back to the computer and work on them. So I think for operatic writing to make those characters a part of your, world and your life as silly as that sounds, but to live with them as much as possible will help you get your head in the music.
0: That's a really cool answer. I really haven't explored opera writing that much or ever really had a chance to, so that's really cool insight. Uh, you two-
1: absolutely should. It's <laughs> wonderful. Yeah, it's so wonderful.
0: I've got a couple more questions for you, uh, and I'll give you an easy one first. Uh, now it might not be an easy one. It might be the hardest one I give you, uh, but would you have a favorite piece of classical music that some of my listeners should check out?
1: Oh, man. It's not oh. the <laughs>
0: I'll I'll go first. Uh, Um, uh, I think that Shostakovich 5 is a wonderful symphony Mm. uh, and really gets at a lot of the power behind his music, uh, even that you'll hear in later pieces. Uh, There's a great story behind it, too, that I don't think I'll have time to tell on the podcast, but uh, that, I think, has been my favorite piece since uh, since high school. So uh, a number of years now, it's still prevailing.
1: Oh, I would say... um... Okay, this is uh this is sort of uh maybe this isn't a great answer, and you can let me know if I should really answer the question after I say this, but I would say, start with whatever interests you, sure, so if you've heard you know great things about this Mozart guy and you've never listened to him and you say, You know, I heard thirty seconds of that one concerto or whatever.' Uh, I'd like to check it out. Then that should be the first thing you listen to. Uh, whatever grabs you, whatever you've heard of that you want to check out, start with that. Because if you the first piece you go to is something super random that you've never heard of and it's just you don't find it interesting, that's okay. But I think you're less likely to move on to something else and pursue listening to classical music if the first thing you don't hear uh, wasn't something that interested you in particular. So, uh, whatever, you know, whatever composer you're interested in, go on YouTube, Google their name, see what comes up, um, would be my suggestion. Go on Spotify, um, iTunes, if you want to purchase some things, go to your library. Um, but whatever is most easily accessible to you, That you're willing to sit down and listen to for five minutes.
0: So it's a diplomat of classical music. That's a great answer. And (laughs) and I honestly thought you were going to say uh, Four Minutes and Thirty Three Seconds" by John Cage, (laughs) and I would have had a good laugh, and then I would have played that for my listeners as the outro. But uh, no, what what, kind of what is though? Do do you have a favorite piece? Maybe not to recommend. Uh, You know, if it's "Black Angels" uh, by the played by the Kronos Quartet. You know, that's very off putting, but it is a great piece of music.
1: Um, I love probably my favorite piece of music is the Verdi Requiem. Okay. And I think it is just a magnificent work and just a huge part of the Western classical music, uh, canon. And, um, it is, uh, I, so part of my, love of that piece uh has to do with uh years ago I was an intern for the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and Riccardo Muti was conducting the Verdi Requiem and I got to watch rehearsals and I remember at one point he said uh, something like um Italians we do not ask god for forgiveness we do not seek god's forgiveness we beg for God's forgiveness and he said this portion of this piece whatever he was talking about he said it is like you are shaking God and he made this shaking motion with his hands and then during the concert when they got to that portion of the music he shook his hands as wow. if he were shaking God like he had in the rehearsal <laughs> and I found that to be so powerful not on a, a spiritual level but you know just to in in terms of looking at music in such a global way and making this metaphor, uh, creating this metaphor and making it come to life on stage for just an incredibly powerful and dramatic performance. So um, I think it's it's absolutely beautiful. I highly recommend checking that out. But again, whatever interests you, if you want to check out some um, you know, Chopin was my first love. I always say, um, I piano is. I'm piano principal. That's my primary instrument. So, um, if you're a pianist and Chopin interests you, listen to Chopin. Um, if you are, um, you know, uh, violinist and the violin concertos interest you to have a listen to that.
0: I, again, I think it's a great answer, uh, and I appreciate the Verde Requiem shout-out. I'll be putting that in the show notes as well. <laughs> in terms of making that musical connection, though, that I think Muti uh, did on stage, both with the, the players in the orchestra, which I think as somebody who's played in an orchestra a ton, having that connection with a, a conductor I think is very important, um, and that really kind of links it all together. I think it's a, a, great, a great anecdote. And, and so for you, then, uh, when it comes to your own composing— who or maybe what influences your composing, uh, you know, feel free to just name drop like crazy. And uh, maybe we can talk a bit about some of the composers that uh, kind of influence your style.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, definitely the Russian greats. Uh, I find uh, hugely influential and Shostakovich in particular. Um, Osvaldo Golihov, I think is a, a brilliant composer. Um, I'm definitely inspired by, um, I, I mean the operas in particular that have inspired my music. I think, um, you know, Wozzeck and Lulu and, um, I love Eugenia Negan. I think that is just so, such a gorgeous opera, The Nose by Shostakovich. Mm Um, and I think, uh, you know, when I think about vocal writing, I, try to look to the greats and the masters, whether or not my aesthetic is at all in line with theirs. You know, my, uh, certainly you don't hear anybody writing like Mozart anymore, but that doesn't mean that we don't go back and study his music because he's done magnificent things with the voice and, and what we have done as a musical society has come out uh, in part from what he has given us, that he was sort of our—he's like our grandfather of music, so our musical mm-hmm. ancestor. Um, so to study, um, you know, uh, Mozart and Verdi and all the opera greats um, has been a super important. Um, I I love Chopin and Liszt, and I know some people hate on them sometimes because uh, they're—it's very. Um, It can be over the top and extravagant in a way that people find, uh, really unnecessary sometimes. But again, um, Chopin really is responsible for my love of playing piano and piano music. And I just today still find that music, um, insanely gorgeous. It's incredible. Um, so there, I mean, there are countless, uh, countless influences and pieces and operas, song cycles, concerti, uh, symphonies that are important. But, um, I think those are the main ones. And
0: Dana, what else do you have going on? Uh, do you have any projects coming up that you want to plug? Feel free to do that as we close out the interview.
1: Great. Um, Well, uh, I absolutely do have some projects coming up that I'm excited about. One of them is an opera about tragedy and the human condition as told through the Kardashians, which will be (laughs) workshopped.
0: That sounds which,
1: awesome. <laughs> thank you. Uh, which will be workshopped uh, by University of Miami Frost Opera Theater and Ensemble IBIS, which is the contemporary music ensemble uh, at University of Miami uh, from April 23rd through 27th. The inspiration of for the opera came out of a song cycle that was commissioned by Opera Rocks Productions in New York and premiered at New York Opera Fest um, in June this past year and has since had uh, another performance and has an upcoming performance. Um, I have some exciting commissions and performances at, uh, in Belgium at the International Clarinet Association's Clarinet Fest, um, Music by Women Conference in Mississippi, Spontaneous Combustion, New Music Festival uh, in... Portland, Oregon, San Diego, San Francisco. Um, So a lot of different performances around the country, mainly uh, working on the opera now. Um, I do have a piece um, called Hang Down Your Head coming out on a Ravello Records or Parma recording uh, CD uh, on February 9th, and that CD is called uh, Shadow Etchings. New music for flute uh, by flutist Orlando Sela.
0: Where can my listeners find uh, more information or download that CD?
1: Um, you can easily find it online in a number of sites easily, um, and again, that's Shadow Etchings: New Music for Flute.
0: Great. And of course, my last question before we wrap things up is, is that uh, workshop available to the public if I wanted to go listen to some music about the Kardashians?
1: Thank you for asking. Um, It is absolutely open to the public. um, And it is not a staged performance, but more of a reading. So anybody who wants to watch and listen is more than welcome to come we will be sort of stopping and starting and working our way through different scenes Uh, but hopefully we'll be able to give listeners a taste of opera kardashian
0: great so for those who are in the miami area check out my show notes if you're interested in hearing some of dana's music live thanks so much for joining me dana it's been a pleasure talking with you here on millennial moves
1: thank you for having me this was wonderful
0: Yeah, well, we've been talking with Dana Kaufman, composer, finishing up her doctorate at the University of Miami. Thanks again, Dana, and take care.
1: Thank you. Take care, Zach.
0: Thanks for listening to Chapter 4, Part 1 of Millennial Moves. A lot more where this came from. Next week, we'll be talking to composer Jay Diaz for an alternative take on the composition process. I hope you enjoy this four-part series in the creative process, and you join us for the Capstone episode, where we'll bring it all together and talk a bit more about the process of creating art. If you have questions or feedback about these episodes or Millennial Moves in general, feel free to get in touch with me via our email address, millennialmovespod at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook, subscribe on iTunes and all that jazz, and if you use a podcast app, subscribe there too. Thanks for listening to this chapter of Millennial Moves. I'm your host, Zach Donish, and join us next week for more Millennials Making Moves.